Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. And today you join me in the executive lounge area of the Top Secret Missing Episodes bunker, as I'm about to welcome some very special guests. So, no expense spared today. I've even got Harry here on the old piano in the corner to play some pleasing atmospheric stuff for when they arrive. Hey, Harry, play that uh, Barry Norman. Oh, Harry's given the double thumbs up. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Because we're going to be talking about TV on film. They'll probably love that. Oops, uh, and one of the antimacassars has slipped there. That's better. I've put out the custard creams to go with the welcome sherry, and I've, I've dotted around a few of the rarer film prints. So, who's coming and why? Well, you'll be aware that this episode is about film collectors, and like in the Shawshank Redemption, I've, I've written to missing episodes commander-in-chief Paul Venezes once a day for three years asking him to appear on this podcast and I think to make me stop writing he's agreed and he's bringing along two well-established and well-connected film collectors so what's on the agenda well on my list are what is film collecting about what formats do collectors collect is there much British TV on film about in collections? Are there lots of missing episodes about? There have been lots of rumours, haven't there? Is there a lot of secrecy? Did the Bob Monkhouse affair and the failed prosecution of him for owning a huge film collection drive collectors underground? And let's face it, there hasn't been a missing episode comeback for 10 years, and if it does, it'll be via a private collector probably and I do know that these folks are involved in a film event in October about the preservation of film including film on TV doorbell just check the CCTV ah. Harry stop they're here So I'm joined this afternoon by three film collectors. I will introduce them one at a time. Now, one of them you may have heard of. He is a TV and multimedia producer by day. And by night, we lovingly refer to him as the missing episodes commander-in-chief, Paul Venezes. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tim. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And we're also joined by two Johns. The first one, John Clancy, has a phenomenal YouTube channel called Movie Collector. And naturally, he's a film collector. Hello, John Clancy. Hello. And last but not least, we're joined by another John, a film collector by the name of John Franklin. Hello, John. Thank you for having me. John came up with the idea of a film event in October, which I'm sure we'll get into later on so what we're going to do i've just got a few areas of discussion and we'll just work through those and then perhaps you can reveal as we go what you collect or what your involvement is in film collecting so you're all film collectors why do people collect film 
What is the cause of the interest in particular? Well, for me, it's the love of cinema, and that was something that started when I was very young. And my father took me to see the original Batman film, I think, in 1966, I think that was. But I don't remember that, but what I do remember was that my brother, who's two years older than me, my father got a Super 8 camera, which is a film camera. It's Super 8, it's 8 millimetres wide, and it's got a film frame, a picture frame that's 6 millimetres wide, as opposed to the original 8 millimetre, which is 5 millimetres wide and has a bigger sprocket, or a Super 8, a smaller right. sprocket, but a bigger frame area. So he got a cine camera to film us growing up, and I now have those films here. My father's got a bit old and decrepit, and I didn't trust him to look after them much longer. So anyway, I, I brought all those films home with me one time with his blessing and put film preservative on them, cleaned them all up, did whatever I could to preserve them, and they're still good to this day. But the first film he shot was of my mother, my brother and me, and my father, actually. My mother did some filming that day in our local park near Southgate, which is Brookman's Park, and that was probably 1968, 1967 around then. Of course, that's now culturally quite significant because that park is still a beautiful park, but it doesn't quite look how it did in the 1960s. And that really fueled my interest in Super 8, and I always loved it when we got the screen out, the projector out, and that's how I became a film collector. And uh, my love of cinema grew, and I wanted to do cinema in the home. So do you exclusively collect Super 8? Well, I did for many years because, let's face it, until a few years ago, you couldn't really tell anyone if you had 16mm or 35mm prints because you'd get knocked on the door and the studios would come and take them away. That was a threat and people did believe that and I do know some people that that happened to. So even when I got into collecting a few 35mm mm. and you know, a few prints started showing up in the house and every time we can't tell anyone we've got this, you know. So it was a, it was almost a private thing. And there are people like us around the country, but it's only really in recent years we've been able to talk openly about what, we, what we've got, what we do, you know, the home cinemas we've got and what we screen in them. We'll get into the, the privacy aspects later on. Uh, so Super 8, is, that, is everything com has been commercially available then? Yes, yeah, there's, um, there are still some releases coming out today, some quite incredible releases from around the world. But, yeah, it was the ability when Duran Films and Lone Wolf and a few others were outputting product, sort of late 80s, early 90s, up until really the mid-90s when Super 8 was at its peak. And, right. you know, we, we talk today about how good Blu-ray is and 4K, but there were prints came out like The Fall of the Roman Empire, El Cid, Predator, Commando, some of the Disney films, which Duran had a deal with Disney and Disney were producing bespoke negatives for them. They messed up the first one, but that's, that's a bit of a long story. But the next one they did, which was a feature, I think it was, um, was it Cinderella, the second feature they did after Little Mermaid had been messed up, and they got that one spot on. And it, those films I've mentioned, apart from Little Mermaid, it really was cinema in the home. Super 8 had come of age. It yeah. was stunning picture quality. Yes, you get no, you get neg dust on it. Not so much if it was a first run print. You damage them. You know, you get scratches because it's tiny. But the ability to fill a ten foot wide screen with multi channel sound in your home—that was something that I'd only ever dreamed of when I was younger. 
And then here it was, and I had my own Empire Leicester Square at home. Beautiful. I've just watched a video of your constructing the uh, the home cinema. I'll link to that in the... Um... Yes, the latest home cinema, because we moved about 18 months ago and had to do it right. again. Yeah. <laughs> Dare I ask how many titles you've got? On Super 8, I couldn't actually tell you, but there's about 40 or 50 full-length features in there. And right. quite a few of those nowadays go for around a £1,000 each, which right. I think is ridiculous, but there you go. It's what people pay for them, Star Wars and Alien, Aliens, Terminator, you know, all those sort of really big titles, Terminator 2. Uh, some of those titles, um, I ended up with two copies of them because we had a tear in London and we had a place outside of London. Of course, if I wanted to watch the film and I was at the other address, so my favourite films, <laughs> I had to have two of them. And so uh, I managed to assemble two prints of uh, two full-length copies of each of my favourites. So I didn't realise I was investing in my pension fund at the time, but that's the sort of thing that happens. Before we move on to, to John F., you've just listed a whole range of different types of film there from the Little Mermaid to Predator to El Cid. Hmm. Does it matter what you're watching? I do have a, an eclectic taste when it comes <laughs> to films, but there's a, there's a couple of films, well, there's one that I always cite that I've never watched. As soon as it comes on, I just can't stand it. And that's, this is probably going to make half your audience turn off, but that's the sound of music. I just can't. <laughs> musicals I tend to have a, I tend to have a problem with but and maybe the other one is Barbie because I saw a few seconds from that the other day and it, no <laughs> people have been asking me on my channel am I going to go and watch Barbie and my answer has been not in this lifetime <laughs> and John F how about yourself well my story is um, very different to John's um, as one would expect, all collectors have a degree of nostalgia as part of their collecting habit. And I think that's certainly something that I would say is part of the reason that I collect film. But I can put my um, actual interest in collecting film back to an incident that happened while I was at university. So um, I'll try and make this as uh, concise as I can, um, because after all these years, the memory isn't perhaps what it could be. <laughs> However, in the mid, uh, mid to late 80s, I was uh, studying and I was also working um, on a part-time basis to have a little bit of extra money in what was lovingly called in those days a hi-fi shop. <laughs> at that time we were introducing into the particular shop that I worked in um, some audio visual items and laser discs were appearing and I was absolutely um, hooked on this whole laser disc thing so I bought myself a laser disc player um, started to buy uh, various laser discs initially those that were certified as PAL in the UK, but as I became a little braver, I was buying um, materials from overseas, predominantly uh, the US. And I mean, before I knew where I was, I'd I had a collection of around about 500 uh, laser discs. I think, um, like John's favorite, John Clancy's favorites, I had about seven copies of Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> well, all of the different uh, editions, director's cut, and this and other. Anyway, 
the long and the short of it was that I was very interested in film and I bumped into um, an old school friend literally walking uh, through in my lunch break and um, we're having a chat. Now, my friend, when we were kids, um, used to invite me over and I used to uh, go and have tea. And when his father would come back or at the weekend, we'd go up into the converted loft and we'd watch um, films that his dad projected. So when I was very young, we watched things like Gulliver's Travels. Um, when I was a little bit older, we watched Robinson Crusoe, Treasure Island. Um, I'm talking about the sort of 1950s versions, of course, mm. with Robert Newton as Long John Silver. I mean, classics, classics. So I was absolutely um, hooked on film from a very young age. But uh, my friend said that his parents had separated, which was uh, sad because they were a lovely couple. And um, basically, he had all of his dad's films. And would I like to buy them as I was so interested in film? So, um, yes, thinking back, I was a little crazy. I agreed. Uh, three days later, I think he arrived at my house in his white post office van. <laughs> with literally a whole van full of suitcases crammed full of uh, films in cans. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, but that's Yes, gosh. Um, there were screens and bits of projector and boxes with lenses. I didn't actually have anywhere to store it all, so I ended up storing most of it at my grandparents in one of the outhouses for uh, a couple of years. And over a period of time, um, managed to wade through all the items that were there in this collection, um, all 16 millimeter film. And the truth of the matter is, I, I didn't really have any idea how to project it or what to do with it. So I managed to get one of the guys I worked with at the hi-fi shop to come over. And between the pair of us, we got the projector to work, managed to get, uh, I never forget it, we managed to get a, an old black and white Robert Mitchum film called The Big Steel up on the screen. And I was hooked on film from that moment on. So um, that's really uh, the genesis for my interest in um, actual film on reels. And I've stayed with it ever since. You started with Laserdisc. Are you still into Laserdisc predominantly or has it moved to film? No, or is... no, no. Well, Laserdisc really doesn't exist anymore. No. I stopped collecting Laserdisc all 25 years ago. I've still got my Laserdisc players. I've got two, including a, a multi-disc player. Um, I haven't got them out of the box for about 25 years. <laughs> I've still got my 500 Laserdiscs and rather like John Super 8, some of them are probably worth hundreds of pounds now. Yeah. Um, my passion, if I can call it that, is real film and um, all the things that go with real film. Before COVID, I used to have some film sort of nights where I'd have some friends over 
and um, we'd make some popcorn, put the projector on, and it's an experience. The whole thing is um, much more than just putting a disc into a DVD player or something. And of course, it creates uh, an interest, particularly if you're playing the sort of films that I like, which predominantly are 1940s, 1950s Hollywood film noir. I mean, there's an atmosphere. So I think that's part of the whole thing. It's, it's the experience and it's something that people can uh, enjoy like a cinema. Sure. Just to confirm, Tim, because we spoke about this, um, the photograph that you have of the films in the suitcase, that's one of mine. I've had those films in that suitcase since I estimate 1988, 89. They're all from the original um, delivery from my friend. Uh, it was only because I was moving house and I was trying to get everything boxed up that I actually remembered I had that, opened it up, and oh, crikey, they're all ex-BBC prints, um, some interesting things. They're all missing Doctor Who's, everyone. I'll give you his address. <laughs> yes, not quite. But um, I, I'll sh I've, I've said to Paul, he can have them all, and uh, he can do whatever he wants to do with them in due course. I and many people have had dreams about going into the attic and finding such a lovely old suitcase filled with BBC film cans. It's an amazing photograph. Paul, I know you've got a, a collection of TV film recordings, but in your dealings with collectors, is this, a, is this a familiar story? Is this always a thing carried over from younger days? I will say, though, that both Johns, because we can all see each other, are relative whippersnappers compared to what I have in mind as a, a typical film collector. Well, it, it's been really fascinating listening to you talking about your backgrounds and where you came from. And I think actually, John Clancy, your background is very similar to mine. My father had a, in fact, I've still got the camera, a, a standard eight camera. Even before he had a camera, he persuaded a friend of his who did have a camera to go to the local park with him and my mother and my elder sister, who, who was only a baby to get on film her first visit to a park. And hmm. um, we still have that film and it's, it's, it's really well shot. And the guy obviously had a bit of money because he had a zoom lens. Was it Kodachrome, Paul? Everything was Kodak. Yeah. You know, they were just a hundred foot reels, which, which there were 16 mil reels, which you turned over and then you sent it off. And um, as long as you hadn't exposed uh, one side of the film more than once, <laughs> which did happen, yeah, Kodak would process it for you. It was all part of the purchase price. So you, when you paid for the film in the first place, you're paying for the processing as well. You send it away in the envelope, and uh, a few days later, it would come back as a 200 foot roll of of standard eight. And uh, we've got lots of those films. There's a big stack of those films, and we used to have regular screenings. And there was a screen, and it would put, be put up, and every now and then something would go wrong with the projector and a hole would be burnt in the in a frame, which was always very frustrating for my father. So I got used to um, the idea of a film show being put on. But I, I think going back to your original question about film collectors, when I first started getting interested in trying to track down programmes on film, and we thought the obvious place was, was to be with film collectors, there used to be various film dealers who would rent out films Mm. And they did advertise their services. And there was one guy up in Dronfield, I think, in Sheffield. 
and myself and Dave Polferman went to a guy called Paul Smart that uh, Dave Polferman knew. Dave ran the um, the Sheffield Doctor Who local group, but I'd got kind of got to know him because I was trying to publicise a convention I was doing, uh, and we got fascinated by the by the idea of trying to track down lost TV shows, mm. and so. He said, I've done some research. There's this guy in Dromfield. I'm going to give him a call. We'll go over and see him. And we did. And this guy had, uh, I, he was much older than us, but he must have been in his 40s. Of course, now he would be in his 80s, but he was in his 40s. And um, he wanted to know what we were interested in. He was really surprised when, when we told him that we were interested in TV shows. <laughs> Very surprised. But he knew exactly what he got. And we hired from him an episode of Mary Mungo and Midge. <laughs> Classic. An episode of The Sooty Show, which I think was a missing sooty. And the Montreux special of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we, we, we got them back and we watched them and made a, a crude transfer to videotape of some of this. And I still got the VHS tape that we did. <laughs> that was kind of the first the first time that we'd managed to get our hands on um, some film. We had, to, we had to pay to hire these films, of course. So this gentleman, I have tried to track him down since, but he's, he's not at the address where it was. But it was just his, he just had a semi-detached house in Sheffield and in the back was a shed and in the shed was a lot of film and not the best conditions that you would expect to store film in. But he was someone that, that made a bit of money on the side renting out films. And he probably had a in the house his own collection that he he looked after and curated. And I think a lot of collectors, I don't know whether, John, you remember Wally Smith, but... Uh, Pine Dean. Pine Dean, yes. Yeah, Pine yeah. Dean film. Of course. So I used to, I used to get his film catalogues in the 80s. <laughs> so and, did um, I. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, from time to time, advertise missing tv shows of course famously he he uh, he sold david stead a missing doctor who in fact he sold him three doctor who films one of them was a missing doctor who in about 1983 but wally was someone that had a collection he'd basically become a collector due to the influence of his father and his father was a dealer and when his father couldn't look after the collection any any longer wally continued it but the trouble with Wally is that he, he was a dealer that didn't really want to sell any films. <laughs> he, he, he just wanted to collect. And so I don't know whether he ever made any money. His film catalogues were actually really full of titles, weren't they, John? They were. They were pamphlets. And I'm sure lots of people requested films from him and spent good money for it. But the last time I saw him, which was less than 10 years ago, he's sadly no longer with us, when I last visited him anyway, and it was in 2013, right? and he was still, he was still selling film then, his house was, was floor to ceiling with, with film. <laughs> Thousands of films. Thousands of cans. And mm. he had a, I think it was an old bakery, a small little bakery at the back <laughs> of his house. Yeah. And in that little bakery, that was full of film as well. And he, he had one or two interesting bits of film there, but um, you couldn't really see anything properly because all the light bulbs had gone and uh, it was pitch dark, so you needed a torch. He had a few torches on standby 
And then um, he would just give you a torch and, um, and a projector lens, which if you invert, you can, uh, you can use as a, as a magnifier to see the state of film. So that was Wally. And that's, Wally Smith actually encompasses the life of a film collector. You, you, can, you can see where he came from. He inherited the interest from his father. He was interested in film, but he inherited the dealership. And he kept on doing that because by doing that, it meant that he could trade with like-minded people that were interested in films and pick up interesting things for his own collection. Uh, sadly, there is a very sad end to that story, which Paul hasn't mentioned. Oh, yeah, there is. So Wally passed away. All of his films were moved out of the property into the outhouse. And I think it was about 2019, it caught fire. So there was, I think the, I'm trying to remember now because it's a few years ago, but there were certainly more than 3,000 reels all went up. And there was a fair bit of speculation, well, not as to uh, the reason, but as to what was actually part of the collection. Paul would know more than uh, myself. But yeah, I mean, he, I'm sure, had some interesting items and up it went, which was um, a terrible end, sad end. I was told it was every single missing episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can tell you, actually, the, the good news is that before Wally died, one of his old friends, film collector, was Terry Burnett. I mean, this shouldn't surprise anyone. They lived... Yeah, they're both on the South Coast, weren't they? Yeah, Wally yeah. was in Southampton, yeah. and, and, and so was Terry, literally just outside of Southampton. And they were both collectors so it shouldn't surprise anybody that they knew each other and they knew each other really well and so so terry when basically wally needed um help to work out what was going on with the collection and i think this was before he died terry and one of uh, wally's other friends went over and went through everything and i think they kind of put the things that weren't actually that important i think into that into the bakery at the back of the house but still, you know, no one wants to see film A go up in smoke or B end up in a skip. And unfortunately, that, that is the fate of many collections. It's, it's sure. awful, really. Well, actually, John, John sure. F. and I have been uh, watching several times a documentary called Splice here, a projected odyssey, a documentary film made by Rob Murphy in Australia, who travelled the world telling the story of how film was replaced by digital video but he went into some detail, didn't he, John, about the films being destroyed, the nitrates, and to see it, oh, it's heartbreaking and frightening as well. It is. Heartbreaking, but what a brilliant film. And I've seen a lot of film documentaries, but I've watched that one three times in a short space of time. And I think you watched it a few times as well, John, didn't you? More than three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, um, but yeah, we're actually going to be screening it, aren't we, at, at this uh, upcoming event? So we must mention that later. But yeah, to see some of these films just go become extinct and some of them would have been the single surviving prints and negatives, it's just heartbreaking. I'm sure uh, that you told me this, Paul, about Wally, that he had those three Doctor Who episodes, and I'm sorry to mention Doctor Who, in his catalogue. And he (laughs) sold them to a collector, and the collector brought them all back because they were standalone items. They weren't the whole thing. The guy didn't want them. (laughs) Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah, so that's absolutely right. And Tim, you'll, you'll understand this. So, so what, 
what happened was, this is what Wally told me. He said, oh yeah, those, those Doctor Who films that I sold, I actually sold them twice. <laughs> uh, the first guy got, got very excited by them and, and uh, bought the three films. And uh, I just had three Doctor Who films. I hadn't really looked at them. He said, so um, he, he bought the films. I don't know how much he paid for them, 15 quid or whatever. And I sent them to him. And then I got a phone call from him. And he was really, really quite upset because um, the three episodes were all from completely different stories and had no connection <laughs> with each other. And he wanted to sit down and watch a Doctor Who story. And instead, he, he got bits of three stories. And so he returned them and I had to give him his money back. And then David Stead ended up buying the, th the three films. So, so I think what people perhaps don't realise is that one of them was actually in Spanish. It had been dubbed into Spanish. So that wouldn't have made any sense at all to him. That would have that would have rubbed salt in the wounds. <laughs> that would have. So yeah, and indeed the 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 two Terry Burnett Doctor Who's they were they went unsold at the end of a, a day's trading at a, a a church fete or something, didn't they? Yeah, it, it was a, it was a box it was a box of film. Yeah, and um, Terry didn't even go go to it. It was um, a friend of his that worked at TVS where he worked was a volunteer at this fete. And he just mentioned that they'd got a box of film. No one had bought it and they didn't know what to do with it. The person that had brought it, it was like a bring and buy, I guess. Had bought it had just gone away because yeah. the fate was to raise money for the local church, I think. And so um, he said, are you interested? If you are, I'll bring, I'll bring the box in. So I don't know if he paid anything at all for the box of film. I think he might have paid a little bit for it. Right. And that was, that was in the early 80s, 84, 85. When, of course, we were, everyone was looking sure. for missing, missing Doctor Who's. So many things have been touched on here that I want to go into. So many different areas. So I think the first thing to say is, I just wonder, it sounded like Wally was a bit of a, a I use this word advisedly, hoarder, <laughs> in that he'd just take everything he could get. But then we've got John Franklin, who predomin whose predominant interest is film noir on 16 mil. And we've got John Clancy, whose predominant interest is uh, Super 8. So do people collect thematically generally, or do they hoover up everything they can get? Well, I think, first of all, most collectors uh, are obsessive hoarders by nature. So, I mean, <laughs> film collecting is not my only interest, my only passion. I have many, many interests, and so do pretty much all of the film collectors that I know. I actually met someone this morning, bought a couple of films from them, and um, he makes Valve Hi-Fi. So, I mean... Most film collectors have many, many interests, and film collecting is one of those. They are obsessive hoarders, so it's not unusual when you visit a film collector to find they've got piles of LPs, piles of 78s, memorabilia in every room. So that's just the, the nature of collectors. I think most collectors, whether it's stamp collecting or film collecting, or what, are pretty similar. And there's a certain amount of nostalgia involved. 
as I mentioned earlier. They do it because it takes them back to a period in their life which they enjoyed. And you have to remember that the vast majority, the vast majority of film collectors are older men now in their late 70s and 80s, approaching 60, I'm a spring chicken by comparison. And of course, some of the themes that are or were of interest in their youth are themes that are slightly detached from today's world. So you'll find film collectors that will only collect things about steam engines or traction engines or shire horses or brasses, things that many younger people today would, what, what relevance does that have to the modern world? It's a nostalgic thing. And I think that's something that you cannot underestimate within the film collecting community. And again, if someone's had an enthusiasm for something and has acquired a film about that, which they may, have had for 30 or 40 years, that creates its own connection, its own nostalgia. And I think that also can't be underestimated. You've talked about holding screening nights, and we've mentioned John Clancy's new home cinema. Then there's a video of it being put together. But also on John C.'s channel, I've seen a fantastic home cinema, which is presumably a garage, which has tiered seating and seating ripped out of a cinema that is about to be demolished, presumably, and umpteen different projectors at the back. Yeah, Knowles. Yeah, we need to get him along to Leicester. Yeah, that's an incredible home cinema, which Keith Wilton uh, did a video at for his Armchair Odeon series of DVDs years ago. And Noel's just great with equipment. He's doing me a new 35mm projector at the moment. He's probably finished it, actually. But he's also got my Super 8 camera that he's repairing. And um, I stupidly left the batteries in it and forgot I'd left them in it. But anyway, won't go into that. Numpty alert there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's, he's a great, great chap. He's he's getting on a bit now, is Noel. And it's, it's actually um, a prefabricated or sort of shed-like building that he's turned into a home cinema. It is incredible, and the organist can really play. <laughs> and, and and so it seems to me that there's an element of the love of the sort of engineering. Noel is a very well. clever chap. He's, you give him a challenge and he can do it. But there's there's a lot of collectors around like Noel. I've, I also uh, went along to Simon Nichols, who's the, one of the latest recruits to the British Film Collectors Convention team, and what an asset he's proving to be. But Simon is actually a professional projectionist, and he was one of those Super 8 collectors who was educated on the perils, really, of collecting 35mm. But it was a damn sight cheaper than collecting Super 8, and you could get the latest features, best possible quality in the home. And um, so Simon got into that, and for years he couldn't tell anyone what he did. And at our Recent BFCC at Chorleywood, there was Simon with his 35mm portable projector, not his pedestal machine. And I think it, he was amazed at the response that got that everyone wanted to look at his machine and talk to him about it and was so appreciative of the shows he put on on 35mm. Quite a story there, but what a brilliant home cinema he's got too. Unbelievable. So, John F., you've talked about collecting features. John C has talked about collecting features, but we keep hearing about TV on film. B 
being in these collections, and we talked about Terry Burnett's, and he had some TV on film. So what sort of prevalence does uh, features have over TV on film, or how commonplace is TV on film? Well, I've got quite a few episodes on Super 8 and 16mm from television shows. US TV shows? Yes, predominantly. Actually, Star Trek is um, one of my favourites, which... I much prefer to Doctor Who, sorry, Paul, but that's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Captain Kirk. I said, well, yeah, brilliant. But, yeah, I've got several of those on Super 8, and I think that was when they dropped out of copyright for whatever reason in America, and so Thunderbird Films, Super 8 releasing company, got in quickly. But uh, I've got other things. I mean, I've got a, an episode of The Professionals here with Bodie and Dahl, if you remember that, and Martin Shaw and Lewis Collins, and... You know, a few things like that. And I just thought, oh, that would be nice to have. And they were television prints, you know. So um, I came back from a, a filming trip in America in 2013 where I was interviewing race drivers for the Sports Car Club of America. And one of those race drivers, Ken Slagle, had a television program made about him in 1976 when he first went out racing in the all-new then Triumph TR7. And I was there making a documentary about the Triumph TR7. And he told me about this television show, but he didn't think it had ever got broadcast and he'd never seen it, but he just happened to have a 16 mil copy on the shelf they're given him. And so um, <laughs> I said, well, I'd be able to transfer it, but getting it back, it would have to wait until I'm back in America. He said, well, if you do a transfer and let me have a copy, then I don't need it back. And so, for example, that episode is here and it's the only, it's the only copy we know anywhere in the world. So these, these things are out there and it's just... You know, finding them really and saving them before it's too late. And I think Paul knows more about that than most of us. But John, you've come across quite a few missing episodes in your own field, haven't you? Well, the question really uh, goes back to television and have how much interest television is to film collectors. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I... I have and do know a lot of film collectors. Only two of the film collectors I've ever met are only interested in television on film. For the vast majority of the film collectors that I've met and that I know, television episodes on film are a little bit of a curio. There's something that um, have shown up uh, at events and I'll just clarify that by saying when I first went to events in the late 80s and early 90s, there were a lot of television episodes um, from the likes of the BBC independent television that could be had at events. And of course, that reflected the film collecting community because there were many, many more events and there were many, many more people involved in the community in those days. But yes, you'd find BBC um, television episodes, it was common to come across piles of them. Certainly uh, in recent times, I've come across one or two occasionally. It's, it's less common to find television on film at events and certainly freely available. So you have to put that as the backdrop as the community, a collecting community has changed anyway. But most people within the film collecting community uh, are focused in other areas. Their enthusiasms, whether it's documentaries or whether it's uh, particular interests like 
traction engines or railways or whatever, and they acquire film with television episodes on them as a side thing rather than a primary thing. And um, that's the view that certainly most of the collectors that I know have had about television on film. John's made a very good point there. And my experience is absolutely that. And I think that the reason for it is that it comes back a lot to what John C has been talking about, which is that collectors like the cinematic experience. And with the best will in the world, mm. black and white film recordings do not deliver that. They just don't. That being said, I was up in um, Leeds in the in the eighties, and there was a gentleman there called Colin Deves, a lovely guy who um, was a film collector, and he and he lived in a two up two down terrace somewhere in Leeds, and he had a massive collection. Again, the house was floor to ceiling film, and he was a collector more than a dealer, but he dealt a bit. And uh, we rang him up and said, uh, got, "Have you got anything you might we might be interested in? We're interested in old TV." all TV shows. So we arrived at his house and I'll put it like this. He obviously didn't get out much. <laughs> um, and he obviously didn't have very many visitors. So we arrived thinking that we'd be in and out in 20 minutes. We were there for about two hours because he insisted on projecting us the things that we had expressed an interest in. So he showed us an episode of 30 Minute Theatre, which we bought from him, which I still have and an episode of Pardon the Expression, which was the Arthur Lowe comedy, Granada comedy. Mm. And the Arthur Lowe comedy, Pardon the Expression, I can tell you now, that must be one of very, a small number of copies of that on film that are out there, because things did not leak from Granada. I've got two Granada mm. films, and that's one of them. So he insisted that we watch these, and because he was deaf, he, he turned the speaker up to maximum, deafening us, and then asked us if we could hear it properly, uh, <laughs> which we, of course, could with our, our fingers half in our ears. So <laughs> it's absolutely true. But then we were chatting away, and I said to him, well, what other TV have you got? And he said, he said oh, he said, I've got, I've got a, a, an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, and we, we, were, we were a bit disappointed. But he raved about that print. He said, it's the, one of the best prints I've got. I love projecting it. The colour is amazing on it. And the quality, it's just phenomenal. <sighs> and that sums up exactly what, what we're talking about. He wanted the cinematic experience. That kind of television gave him that. Like the episode of The Professionals, mm. which, which is quite rare to find out there, John. I mean, I did sell a collection of professional films for somebody but they are difficult to get hold of and they are sought after. Copies of Six Million Dollar Man in America are actually 10 a penny. There are lots of them out there. So for Colin in, in the 80s to get hold of it, bearing in mind he was probably in his 70s then, for, for Colin to come across this and for him to get so much pleasure out of it, he was taking it from the cinematic, the cinematic view of it. He was getting a lot mm -hmm. out of it. And lots of collectors... If they've got an episode of Pardon the Expression and they've got a nice colour feature, I mean, let's say, for example, they've got um, a, a really good print of The Wizard of Oz, they're, they're mm. going to watch their episode of Pardon, Pardon the Expression, which is a half-hour self-contained black-and-white comedy. They're going to watch that as a little preamble before they put on their the main feature, which is what we're really interested in, The Wizard of Oz in colour. Fabulous. So that's what it's about. It's um, for those kind of collectors. Once they've seen that comedy, 
they don't particularly want to see it again. They'll sell that on. Prize, their prize copy, yeah. The Wizard of Oz, that's staying in their collection. That's not going anywhere. So that's what it's about. And that's why collectors often don't really know what they've got. Those kind of things aren't important to them. They're interested in, like John is, he could probably name every every all 500 copies of the Laserdiscs he's got, the titles. He'll know them all. <laughs> well, I know seven of them. They're called Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming around his house because there's a few of those I haven't got myself. Uh, ironically, when Paul Schoons went round to his film collector friend to watch the missing Doctor Who, he was made to set through a 90-minute feature that they had no interest in whatsoever <laughs> to be able to get there to the go. line. Well, I was just going to try and clarify how the people that I know within the film collecting community tend to view films so and again please paul correct me if you think uh, i'm wrong but i think what you basically have is you have film collectors that are predominantly interested in feature films and shorts that's the vast majority of collectors from my experience and that of course can be on different gauges whether it's 16 millimeter 35 millimeter super 8 features and shorts. You then have a very small um, number of people, say I only know two, who are interested in television on film. And finally, what you have, and this is really very interesting, is homemade uh, films, homemade cinema, um, whether it's professionally homemade, it sounds rather strange, but people obviously have done it in a professional way, or whether it's literally filming someone at the park on their first outing. And what's of great interest is the last category is certainly more culturally relevant for archives, because it will often take in the trip to the spam factory that Sam went on in 1962, that of course, the Spam Factory is no longer there. And those recollections for a regional archive mean that it's absolutely a must-have. The trip to the potteries to see where the porcelain was made. All these things are the things that you'll find being sought out by archives far more than film features and film shorts and far more than television. Although, of course, with people like Paul and uh, other people who are interested in old television episodes that has its own particular sphere of interest sure i think another thing that's talked about or has been talked about in the doctor who community about film collectors uh, and i know of a couple and terry burnett was one are former tv employees yeah and presumably that's a different category of collector what terry was interested in I don't think he's unusual in this, but he started out as as an engineer that used to, re used to repair things. And so mm. he was really interested in the technical side. He was turned on by the technical technicalities of radio and television. He didn't just collect films. He collected radios and televisions. He got a big collection of quite rare radio and TVs. And if they didn't work, he would repair them. And he was so old school that he knew how to repair them and also he knew where to get the parts so he was a fascinating guy and and his collection very kind of similar in some ways to my interests as well in that he liked technical films films about radio 
and television production, of which there were all sorts from all over the world. So he was interested mm. in all of that. But also, I offered him a 1950s film recording, which uh, in the end I, I gifted to him because he was quite excited by it. And it was a comedy from the 19... Actually, this one's from the early 60s, 405 line film recording. He was absolutely fascinated by this and was very, very happy to add it to his collection because it was an example of, it was actually a good quality film recording. And um, if I'd said to him, I've got two copies of this particular show, one's a suppressed field film recording and one's a stored field film recording, which one would you have? He would have said, I'll have them both because I want to see the difference between the two. That's, <laughs> the kind, that's the kind of person that Terry Bennett was. So, so Terry was interested in the technical side. And his collection reflected that. A lot of his films were films about, like colour promotional films as well, shorts and TV shows about television and radio production. So that was his interest. And uh, it was just, it was interesting. It, the hobby projecting something, projecting films, you know, in his later year or two of his life, he decided he was going to um, start collecting 35 millimeter <laughs> and had a <laughs> and had a 35 millimeter projector because he liked the, the technicalities of it. And, and suddenly, you know, the, the last time we went to see him when we, when we were doing some filming with him, he said, oh, I've, I've, got to, I've got to project you something. And there was some issue which meant he couldn't project us any 35 mil. And then when we tried to project him 16, there was an issue with the, um, with the gate and the tension, uh, the tension arm on one of the projectors. And he really felt that even though he'd promised us he was going to project something, he couldn't do it because if he did, he thought he might damage his film. So sadly, sadly, I never got to see a film projected by Terry. Uh -huh. but, um, but yeah, that's what he, he was interested in. And I think that this reflects quite well what John's been saying, that you know, collectors, they have their peculiar interests in certain areas, peculiar to outsiders who don't understand what it is, but not peculiar mm. to us because we have all got these these very similar interests. They're not the same interests. We're interested in different things. Actually, it's interesting, though, you know, say about peculiarities. You show someone a projection booth in a cinema today that is just video projection and no one's got any interest at all. You show them a film projector and they'll be in there all day. Yes, that's true. So having said all those things about film collectors not really being interested in television on film, I should say that from all of the recent conversations I've had with film collectors, I've been amazed just how much television they're all telling me they have on film as part of their collection. So that's something that, um, well, maybe down the line, we'll be able to talk about a little more. Oh, gosh. Can we go back to something that John Clancy raised at the start? And this is about the provenance of films and the want for secrecy. So John said, you know, a while ago, you couldn't talk about your 16 mil and your 35 mil features because they probably, I'm guessing, had been removed from a cinema at some point without permission. And it's well known that films that left the BBC were destined for, the, for landfill and were intercepted on their way out. So how much secrecy is there around 
both features and TV on film and how concerned are people about letting it be known what they have? Well, I don't think there is any secrecy anymore because the film collectors are the new best friends of the studios and the film archives. So it's true. whereas they've been rather silly in the past by sticking their films in a skip, fortunately, quite often, a film collector just happened to go past said skip and rescue a full-length 70mm print of Ben-Hur or something, you know. So it's um, it has been yeah. known, and those sort of things have actually saved films in the past. What was that story in Splice here, John? It was um, someone out there had a very rare print. Um, it's a mad, 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 mad world, wasn't it? Correct. Did anyone have a 70mm print of that because they were looking to restore it? Now, those of us that know about how films are struck from the negative and whether they go through the interpositive, interpositive, then general release print, 70mm prints in the main come straight off the original camera negative. And the grading that's been worked out on the interpositive is applied to that print as it comes off the negative. Don't ask me how that's done, but that's the basis of it. So a 70mm print of a film is effectively as good as it's going to get without having the original camera negative. Mm. So the appeal went out and this person in Australia gave up his beloved print and the studio never gave it back. And that's the, uh, the lack of trust that formed between the studios and the collectors. And in addition to that, there were stories and I didn't know of people getting the knocks on the doors and having their 35mm prints confiscated because it was illegal to own them. Similarly with 16mm, I believe that was illegal as well, was it not, chaps? I think there's there's two issues from my point. Um, I'm not sure whether it was illegal. I think what, what most of the um, corporations, let's use that term, what they wanted to do is to stop piracy. And it was... It was that was the fear. Oh, all these people—they're they're pirates rather than collectors. I mean, most collectors just want to have the film at home and to enjoy it. They have no intention of making copies and trying to monetize it. Um, in fact, I remember speaking to a collector who uh, had someone knocking on his door years and years before about this exact issue. And he said, well, I wasn't actually trying to monetize it. In fact, I would give people supper. So, um, <laughs> of course, it, it was something that was a shadow. And that was why people kept a lot of this information to themselves. But the issue of film coming out of let's say the BBC as an example. I mean, I have never worked at the BBC, but I can imagine mm. that in the 60s and 70s, those technical suites, the editing suites, the sound suites, they must have been swimming in reels of film. Paul can probably talk to this um, with much greater knowledge. And of course, there was film everywhere. A lot of the film was surplus to requirements. And so I don't like the, the term, you know, it was stolen. It was going to be thrown away. And of course, as a film collector, you never want to see anything thrown away. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a knee-jerk reaction. You pick it up, oh, I'll take it home. And of course, that's what happened. But because mm. people took things off-site... And because they were employees of larger corporations, in that instance, the BBC, 
there was a certain amount of fear as to if someone did come back X number of years later, say, right, how did you acquire this copy? That they didn't want to actually uh, have to start explaining all these things. So I think that's one of the reasons why some people who have acquired film, not in an illicit way, in an absolutely genuine and bona fide way, have been reluctant to come forward because they don't want to have this perceived inquiry into what happened 35 or 40 years ago when you were working in the sound suite at this place and you took these films. Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. Well, no, it's absolutely right. And um, I used to work in the cutting rooms at Pebble Mill and uh, the cutting rooms weren't really where you would find complete episodes of of anything. Uh, the, The show I was working on when I joined the BBC, a little bit after I joined, was Howard's Way, which was the um, <laughs> the sailing soap opera with Kate O'Mara and others. And my job was to sync up the picture and the sound and get it to the sound suite so they could make the coffee mags and whatever. And there, was, there wasn't really an opportunity to take anything meaningful away there. There was nothing there that, you'd be, that anybody would be interested in. Of course, <laughs> someone's going someone's gonna, to uh, prove me wrong about that. They'll turn up with a cutting copy of something important one day. But um, I did speak to a guy that used to work, not for very long, but at the end of the 70s, used to work in the film dispatch at Villiers House. And they used to used to get material in from, a, from overseas and then also had to dispatch stuff to overseas television stations, foreign stations that had either bought or wanted to get film on approval. He was so concerned about what was being thrown away that he used to send anything that he had been told to destroy to Sue Molden. And I've not spoken about him before. He didn't stay in that area very long. He worked on the technical side of things and he was just in the dispatch for a short period of time. But I mentioned it to Sue. She remembered getting a um, film sent to her anonymously from um, from Villiers House. And it's one of the reasons why she was so interested in... <laughs> going over there to see what was there. But what he did say is that people don't know what Villiers House is. Villiers House was, um, it's still there. It's a big kind of office building, literally built above Ealing Broadway tube station in London. And lots of people that worked at Ealing Studios would know Villiers House and would, would go back and forth between Villiers House and Ealing. And of course, they all lived in the area. Lots of the film guys still live in the area. What he told me was is that they would put stuff into the skips so there'd be a skip at the back of uh, the loading bay of Villiers' house. And this wasn't, although it was kind of on the pro- on private land, it wasn't hidden from the public. And there was a footpath very near to this. And anybody who, could, who was walking by would look in there and people every now and then would take things out of the skip. It was mostly film that was in there. And of course, film collectors knew that the BBC would be putting stuff out. I mean, they'd get a tip off from their mate in the cutting rooms <laughs> who was an editor or, or an assistant, and say, if you want anything, uh, we just put a load of stuff in the skip. Um, and so they, would, so they would go along and take a couple of things out. And, and I think, you know, they would take what they could carry. And you can't really carry easily a big stack of film, you know, in your hands in one go. So if you're on foot, you might take a couple of cans. And if you had a car, you might turn up after six o'clock when everyone had... Uh, started to go home and uh, you might fill your boot 
and that's how things got out of um, got out of the BBC, out of enterprises. Got a funny little anecdote to add to this because you mentioned the film editors, of course, Keith Wilton, who ran the BFCC for years, film editor at Ealing Studios, and um, along with his colleagues Alan Martin, Ken Locke, and Howard Billingham, the four of those were a team that. <laughs> probably on the BBC's time, we're also doing the Super 8 cutdowns for all the distributors in this country. So I thought I'd just put that in there. So anyone out there like <laughs> me has uh, got the 400-foot reel of Phantasm from Duran Films. That was edited by Ken Locke at the BBC when he was on salary. So there you are. That's, uh, that's why the BBC <laughs> is uh, of such importance to me as a film collector. Well, I, I'll add to that. Um, and you'll know this more than I, John, because um, you were so actively involved in what I would call the London film collecting scene. So many of the people that were involved in the London film collecting scene were people that had been either technical people, projectors, editors or whatever at the BBC and other major studios. You've mentioned three or four. I mean, there are others, of course, we could mention, and I know Sue Malden knows most of those people. Um, so again, it was a community where one thing led into another. So of course, the movement of film out of an organization into the film collecting community and around the community, it was the most natural thing. And yes, Many, many more things perhaps came out of those uh, skips or the BBC than perhaps people would like to acknowledge, Paul. Yes, absolutely. And there was um, a guy called Barry Littlechild. I don't know whether anybody remember yes. Barry. Yeah, so Bar Bar he was a really interesting guy, Barry. And he worked at Ealing and was involved in film editing. And he told me that on one particular day, he was, I don't know whether it was the library Ealing or, or one of the projection rooms, but, but stored along one wall were a lot of 35 millimeter film recordings, uh, which included things like A for Andromeda, and they were destined to be, to be skipped, to be thrown away. This would have been in the late 60s or early 70s. And 24 hours later, the shelf was empty, which surprised him. He couldn't be certain whether the material had been skipped or whether it had been disposed of in a different way. I'll put it like that. <laughs> well, Barry, um, who's no longer with us, had his own cinema set up, didn't he? He had his own um, cinema set up and um, he was involved in, uh, I think he was down in Tunbridge, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was very yeah. actively involved in the archiving of film down there. So again, just reinforcing what I'm saying. Um, ex-BBC person and of course moved very actively into film collecting with all the things that went with film and had a crossover into archiving. He discovered a couple of films himself, didn't he? He actually he, found a he couple found, of... Uh, he found a children, yeah, Children's Film Foundation film. That's right, yes. Yes, lovely Barry. I think this is fascinating. I think the, the general relaxed way in which you three are talking about these people and these activities perhaps does show a shift in mentality. Bob Monkhouse and what happened to him in the mm -hmm. 70s is often quoted as a reason why film collectors have been driven underground because he, was, uh, he wasn't prosecuted in the end, was he? But a, a large amount of his stuff was destroyed. Is that still cited as a reason to keep quiet about things or, or are really people feeling quite liberated about 
talking about what they have. I think Bob Monkhouse actually had the missing sequences from Buster Keaton's The Cameraman and they scrapped it. That's correct. It was destroyed by the police. Or, yeah. I mean, it might still exist in a vault somewhere, but they're being, if it does, they haven't come up with the film. And it's very unfortunate that it happened in the way that it did. That's the incident which, it did two things. It undermined film collectors' faith in being treated properly. Mm. But because ultimately the judge threw it out, <laughs> you know, they basically, it was, it, the case was thrown out with no case to answer because he wasn't trying to monetize anything. Yeah. Because of that, those in the know realized that it was unlikely that there was ever going to be a successful prosecution of anybody that had a, a film collection. So it, it, it was unfortunate that it alienated film collectors ag against authority, really. It, it reinforced yeah. their view. The authorities were, were kind of out to get them, whilst at the same time, because of the outcome, it meant that they were very, very unlikely to be prosecuted or, or chased after because it was never because the precedent was set with Bob Munkhouse, it was never likely to go anywhere. So it was the whole thing was a very unfortunate, but I think necessary incident. Sure. Yeah. But John C, you say there's a thawing in this sort of conservative attitude towards talking about what well, I think have, John F and I can actually confirm that that has happened now because of what we're working on and what is coming up at the end of October sure. and the film archives and everyone involved in wanting to preserve film is going to get together in Leicester and that's what John came up with that was his idea and he telephoned me after the mm. BSCC and said now John I've, I've had this idea I've been mulling over but what happened at Chorleywood with all those collectors coming in early in the morning it's made me think that we ought to do something to get collectors in touch with the archives. And that was what the idea was. And as he said, would you have any objection to me trying to set this up? <laughs> It'd never look a gift horse in the mouth is the expression, isn't it? But that's, um, or is the Pope Catholic was probably my answer. But that was, um, that was the idea that Keith Wilton and I, you know, if we'd have, might not have worked 20 odd years ago, but we'd been looking for something because film collecting needed something to bring it to a new audience and uh, keep it going and thriving into the future. And we couldn't find it. We tried various avenues and nothing was working. So let's move towards that then. You keep mentioning the BFCC. You've mentioned Chorleywood, which I've seen a, a fantastic video of on your channel, John. So can we talk about the state of collecting in the UK at the moment? how many collectors there are, the age of the collectors, and what's happening to film collections in the last few years. How do I say this without making every listener to this podcast um, have a seizure? Look, the fact of the matter is an enormous amount of film has been lost, and film is being lost on a daily basis. That's the reality. So, what we have is a film collecting community that since COVID has reduced significantly, mainly because the people that collect film are older men in their 70s, 80s, and some even older. So there's been a natural shrinkage and COVID hasn't helped. The fact that uh, as you get older, you're less able to look after yourself, let alone the 10,000 films and 
let's clarify that there are people with thousands of films in their collection within their homes that are not being maintained because they can't maintain their own lives let alone their film collecting habits so we estimate based on a number of things not least the number of um, magazines that are being sent out to people as potential buyers the number of subscribers to various periodicals those people that turn up to the few shows and events that there are still that they're probably 200 to 250 active film collectors in the uk so we're talking very very small numbers and there's probably around about a thousand film collectors all told with the vast majority now having film that is vulnerable and I say film, I'm talking film and film equipment because that's something that is also got to be taken part. I mean, just getting hold of the parts to maintain projectors, to do the things to play the film is becoming increasingly difficult. So we have a very, very small community which has the vast majority of it unable to look after the film i.e. it's vulnerable and if we don't do something quickly that film will be lost forever because we are losing a lot of film on a daily basis to landfill and it could well include culturally important film it could include missing episodes all manner of things and so we've got to act. And that's one of the things that John C. and I, and indeed um, calling on help from people like Paul and others to do something to raise awareness of this issue. What is the BFCC, first of all? That's the British Film Collectors Convention. And what sort of shape is that in? It's a gathering of film collectors that was first established. I think it was the first one anywhere in the world, actually, certainly in Britain. 1976, and that was by the late, great Paul Van Summeren. And EC sadly died, I think, just before the 1980 event. Was it 81? It was around that time. And so it was a third or fourth event. And so it was passed on. And eventually it ended up with who became my boss a few years later, Keith Wilton. And Keith had kept it running up until 2016 when we took a bit of a break. And then we lost our venue. And, um, finding a venue to hold something like a film collecting convention when you've got a 24 foot wide cinema scope screen, loads of projectors, um, big sound systems and all sorts of things and dealers to put into a hall and bring them by under Patrick Mills. There's a lot to it. So you need a pretty big venue. So when I started my YouTube channel, the prime focus of that was, would it bring us a new audience of people with which to re-establish the BFCC and it pretty quickly did and so I, th I thought well we can't do something on the scale we used to do so I spoke to Keith who's not in the best of health now but he, he's still still getting out there he's still got a massive collection of film I put the word out that we, we needed to find a new venue and and uh, Graham Sindon came up with the option of Chorleywood where the group 95 people had held their convention once or twice now, they're a lot smaller than the BFCC, but it was the only option. 
six and a half years, well, at the time, almost six years have gone by since the previous BFCC. We'd obviously had the years of COVID. Wow. And um, to bring it back, we need something more affordable so it can't be as huge as what we used to have. And I thought it's a much smaller hobby now anyway. <laughs> so the smaller venue will do. We'll just see if we can fit the screen in there. If not, they've got a 15-foot drop-down screen, you know, an academy ratio, which is not ideal, but we'll just have to make the best of it. We got the screen up, but what they didn't tell me was that they'd taken all the blackouts down off the front door. And so we had some issues with the uh, with the venue, but the big issue was uh, the people just kept coming in, didn't they? And it was uh, we were like sardines at times. And so it was uh, a big success in some ways and not in others. But what, what was great was to get everyone back together. And I knew that if we were going to use Chorley Wood, it's the Churchill Memorial Hall, isn't it? If we're going to use that again, then obviously we've got to invest in some things in order to black it out properly and to make more space available for dealers, really. So you know, we, had, we had some work to do. And and you say you had, you, you, mm. they kept coming in. Was that, was that returning collectors of the old school, if I can say that, or was it a, a, newer, a newer crowd? Well, I think the reason we had more than I was anticipating because I thought, you know, we might, we should do a hundred and that, that would more or less cover the costs. Um, but what happened was a load of my viewers came in as well, which is brilliant. Oh, (laughs) so, and they they were coming along and buying projectors and films and getting into the hobby. I mean, brilliant. That's, that's, you know, I was trying to, that's a result. That's great. I was trying to introduce, and that was another reason why I started that YouTube channel was because, 4K discs, I mean, that's like, many of those are like having 35 millimeter prints on a CD size disc. I mean, they're incredible. I mean, Blu-ray is very good, but some of these 4Ks, particularly Blade Runner, John, you'll, um, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that would that will have to be your, your next purchase, I think. But I wanted to introduce people to film because there was no one else doing reviews or talking about any of these things on YouTube that I could find. And in the main YouTube is youngsters, isn't it? And obviously I include myself in that. But when it came to home video, there was no one who knew the previous market on Super 8. Everyone thought it started with VHS. So I came along and started educating people. And uh, the third third video I did was actually a review of the 4K of Jaws, which HMV kindly sent to me a day early. So I was able to get a review out uh-huh. and on release day and um that really set me on the path but as a as a result of that being jaws and that having a wonderful history on super 8 there was the best 200 foot cut down to a feature ever issued on super 8 was jaws and um i have that copy and there was also a two by two by 400 foot release which runs for about 31 minutes i think and that was a very good cut down but not of the same caliber as the 200 foot that runs for just over 10 minutes and so I was able to show those boxes, if you like. But I also showed, because I didn't think Universal will object, because the trailer is there to publicise a film. And the trailer was released on Super 8 in CinemaScope. And as I walk into my cinema, that's playing on the screen. You don't really see it much. You hear a bit of the, the music. And uh, so I turned it off when I went in. And I said, but this is a great way to illustrate how this film was made. And I swung the scope lens in and out to illustrate how it goes from being flat, a 1.33 to a 2.66 widescreen. And Universal copyrighted me on it. (laughs) 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 But there you go. So lesson learned on that. But, you know, quite right, it's their property. But what I was pleased about was that it illustrated how these things work because most people out there haven't grown up with it. 
they don't know about these animal fixed scope nope. lenses and they just know something is a 2.40 to 1 or a 2.35 to 1 and boy do they get hung up on those aspect ratios when when you've got a cinema with moving masking you're always cropping it but you know they're approximations but anyway that's so it was educating people about that and where it all came from and um it took off and the the one that really uh that did it was um my favourite film for various reasons. I don't think it's the best film ever made. In fact, I think Blade Runner is probably better. But my favourite film is Ridley Scott's Alien. And um, I've got so many copies of that. I couldn't even tell you how many copies I've got on Laserdisc, John, but I might rival your Blade Runner collection there. But you know, I've got it on I've got it on 35mm. I've got a bit of it on 16mm. I've got it on a couple of copies on Super 8, you know, and it's one of those really valuable Super 8s, um, which is great. But uh, not that I'll ever part with them. But that's that's my favourite film, and so I did a review of that on my YouTube channel, uh, the 4K disc, because people were asking me, can you review the 4K disc? And I said, no, I'm not going to. And in the end, I thought, oh, to hell with it. And so I got the 4K disc, and I took a look at it. And yes, it's, it's a terrific 4K disc, and it compares very well to my 35mm print. And so I put this rather extensive video out that showed them my total collection, much of which people didn't know ever existed. And... Um, and uh, the night, that night when I was getting ready for bed, I said to my wife, I, said, I think I finally nailed it with that one. If that doesn't do something, then it's time to give up. Following morning, I got up and I think my 2001 video from several months before had had 30,000 views overnight. Gosh. And, uh, and you've got 20-odd thousand subscribers now, haven't yes, you? Yes, yeah, which is a... That's phenomenal. But it's, it's, the, um, it's the comments that I get from all over the world and I should be touching wood here, but you hardly ever get a nutter or someone who's not a film enthusiast. And that's what's been really great. So you have film enthusiasts from all over the world are actually meeting mm. each other on my YouTube channel. I'm a subscriber, I should say. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, wa I watch John's uh, um, uh, reviews and they aren't anything like anything else because it goes into such detail without actually showing any clip of the film, which is great, which is great. <laughs> I learned my lesson with Jaws, Paul. Yeah, I mean, what you should do is you should contact them and say, um, you should send me free discs and, and I'll review them properly for you. But I want mm. to show clips and they'll probably let you. What John's just explained really clearly is, is that it's exactly why film collectors are interested in film. You know, John collects the 4K discs and 35mm and... Super 8, whatever, for the love of, of cinema. And that is not the same at all as, as why anybody will, will be interested or, in collecting film recordings of old TV shows. It's not the same thing. And so I think getting people to understand that is really important. That, that will explain why, you know, I said, you know, when I talked about a film collector I, I know who has some Doctor Who's, I said he's got he's got bigger fish to fry. He does. He's he's got a life that he's living that's got nothing to do with Doctor Who or film recordings. He doesn't project his films very often and hadn't done for many years. Uh, and he's got uh, other responsibilities. He's got people to look after in his family who are unwell. And that's unfortunately the case with a lot of film collectors who are getting on in years. So I think it's just worth bearing that in mind. I think that's a great point. And John's John Clancy's enthusiasm for the film really illustrates that. So may I just add that, um, that there's no official film collecting body 
there's nothing set up as the go-to organization that people go to. What you have is you have groups of enthusiasts that get together when they know there's an event, when they know that there's something happening. And of course, that's one of the things that with COVID and with people getting older didn't happen. So of course, the, one of the great things about the Chorleywood event is people were just able to come along and talk and chat about film collecting. And I bought a couple of things at the event, but it was just good to be able to meet people and talk and have that interaction, which of course, for older people with those enthusiasms is absolutely vital. So that has to be considered an integral part of the community. And that's what it is. So if you're outside of the community, and I don't mean it to sound like some sort of closed thing, but if you are outside of the community, people won't be as open, won't be as willing to discuss things as if you're inside the community. So John and I, when we speak together and when we speak to other film collectors, yeah, there's an openness. I don't necessarily think that film collectors will be as open about their collections and, of course, their experiences with people that are outside, especially larger corporations, if I can use that term, or authoritative type figures who represent larger corporations. Sorry, Paul. Um, so film collectors um, are a, quite a tight-knit group, but there's an openness that wasn't there within that group. I'm not so sure that that's quite extended to the outside world, but over a period of time, and certainly with what we're doing with Film is Fabulous, I think that's gradually happening. Before we get on to Film is Fabulous in October, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is there is an, an attitude that is often expressed in Doctor Who fandom, that there are film collectors who are hoarding specific prints because of their innate value and their own interest in them. And that is being done to the detriment of Doctor Who fans. So could I just ask each of you, in turn have does any of that ring any truth not at all absolute rubbish and if there is a collector who's sitting on a doctor who copy and he's keeping it from everyone it's because he doesn't know what he's got and he doesn't realize the importance of it i'd second that i think there's two things firstly collectors are returning things to the various well certainly regional archives and the national archives on a regular basis, Paul will verify this, if it wasn't for collectors, so many things wouldn't have been returned and are being returned. The sad truth is, the way that collections are often formed and the way people have their enthusiasms, they don't really understand what some of the items that they actually have are. That's also true um, with John and the example he gave of the uh, 16 millimeter film. So I think you have to put those two things into context. Collectors often don't necessarily know the value of the things they have. And when they do find out about it, they return it all the time. Paul, what's your experience of the Doctor Who hoarder, if any? So I obviously agree, agree with 
the two Johns. And my experience is, is completely the opposite of the Doctor Who fans prevailing view. Although I don't think it is, I don't think it's the common view. I think it's the view of a minority of people as inevitably who are perhaps just a little bit too interested in Mm. in conspiracy theories you know exactly the same thing happened when phil morris was trying to track down his films and and then found some and a little rumor gets out and it gets blown out of all proportion and um and it gets exaggerated and because you don't say something or or you do say something but you say the wrong thing the fans get all kind of hot under the collar and 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 things are being kept from people and i don't think that's the case really the truth is that uh, the collectors have got no knowledge really of they collect films they don't collect television programs and they've got no real knowledge of the world of doctor who uh, or any other cult television interest they're not interested in that and so the few things that they might have in their collections are just the few things that they might have in their collections they're not anything special to them uh, and they're not things that they're directly interested in. And Terry Burnett is a really good example. He was he, it's exact that describes Terry exactly. And what did he do when he found out that he had something important? Well, we can all see it now. So I think that you know vilifying uh, film collectors, film collectors are the heroes of the situation that we're now in. They're the ones that if there is anything else out there, if we take the initiative as John is with Film is Fabulous and bring collectors kind of, you know, make them aware of the value of their collections and make people like the BFI more interested in collectors, then um, I think we'll all benefit from from that. And it's not just, you know, missing TV shows. I mean, there may be no Doctor Who that will come from collectors. That's doubtful, but there may be. But what I think the positives of this are going to be lost films or some lost TV shows being returned to archives and being, more importantly, being made available so that people can see them. And I think there are certain obstacles to that once something has been found. One is the rights issue with with television programmes. That is a that is a big obstacle in getting things seen. It's one of the reasons why people are so disappointed that network distributing went under. Mm. Something that absolutely could have been avoided but also organizations like the bfi kind of do need to get their act together when it comes to getting at you know making access to content that there's in their own archive available to people as well there are cost issues to that but um you know big organization like the library of congress in america does it so much better and uh, i just do wonder why the you know obstacles are being put in the way of distributors over here so perhaps um, something that the BFI may not like me saying, but it's absolutely true. John F., tell us about the event in October. Well, it's called Film is Fabulous because uh, it is. And I think the primary thing that we've discovered while talking to film collectors, my colleagues um, and I talking with our fellow film collectors is that there are a couple of very simple obstacles that could be overcome that would make life so much easier for us, for the collector and for the organizations that would be the repositories for their film stock, which is pretty straightforward to deal with. One, create a list of the films that you have in your collection a simple 
list. If you can do something more than that, an inventory with the details of the film and what details you have, and this would cover not only features, shorts, television on film, but also your homemade cinema because of the cultural importance that that might have on a homemade film that covers the porcelain factory or the spam factory or whatever from 1960. <laughs> Do a list. And then secondly, give clear instructions as to what you want to happen with your film collection when you die. A codicil can be produced with a solicitor for less than £20. If that was supplied with the list and giving clear, right, I want my films to go to the media archive in central England, boom, then everyone would understand what the collector's plan and intention was with their films. I've come across virtually no collectors that have won a list of their films and two, any clear idea as to what they want to do with their films. A couple, and Terry Burnett, as Paul will confirm, was one of those that gave clear instructions towards the end, but most film collectors do not, and that creates lots of issues because, of course, you don't know what's in the collection. The family, the beneficiaries of their estate don't really know what to do with the items, and the confusion means that very often their films get thrown into the skip, which is exactly what we want to avoid. Very often when someone sadly passes away, you have to clear their property. PDQ. Well, of course. And um, I've been faced with, and Paul's accompanied me, I've been faced with visiting collectors' homes, talking with their families, trying to um, ascertain what is the best and the right course. And I mean, we were at a collector's house uh, not long ago where there were thousands of films not only films, but there were also um, uh, editing equipment, all sorts of uh, very expensive but old items. And because of the issue that the collector had left the beneficiaries and the executive of their states in, not having clear directions, a lot of that film couldn't be saved because of the time issues that we had to try and clear it out. Heartbreaking. Sure. But what yeah. we're also going to try and do at Film is Fabulous is a BFCC-style event so that collectors can come along and buy and sell and trade film. And we're also going to have the film archives there. We're going to have panel discussions and hopefully some big names from the industry. So I think that's worth adding. But also, John, is it the right time to say that we're going to be making one or two announcements for things that might not be known to still exist at this film it's fabulous well yes there's no question that we'll be announcing a number of let's call it fines that um, reside amongst the film collecting community that have been volunteered through the conversations that um, have been occurring it would be premature to go into all of those because of some of the issues that Paul's covered. But an example is a collector with whom we were discussing uh, their collection volunteered that they had a nitrate film print, 35 millimeter, of a 1919 film by Selznick. It's the only one in the world. And of course, its value is, well, 
you can't place a value on it. So we are going to be doing everything we can to find the right repository Gosh. for that, probably the Library of Congress in the US. And that's going to be one of many items that we'll be announcing. We may not be showing them, but we'll be announcing a number. And I think that's very exciting. And you mentioned the panel discussions. Paul will be taking part in that, Paul. I shall, yeah. And we've got a fantastic lineup covering issues to do with archiving, covering television on film, and of course, the issue of film on film. We hope to be live streaming those discussions to a number of platforms. So if you can't get along to the event and you're interested in some of the things that we're doing, then you'll be able to uh, get onto various platforms and to see what's going on with the film is fabulous. And we're also going to try and do what might be the biggest Super 8 projection enlargement in the world so far at Screen 1 at the Phoenix, because we don't actually know how wide that screen is. What would you estimate, John, about 35 feet? Oh, I would say at least that, yes. It's going to be, there's no um, question, the largest Super 8 projected scope um, in, hmm. in probably Great Britain, if not the world. <laughs> and... Um, I've just got to make sure my um, souped-up Super 8 Elmo GS1200 with an HTI lamp in it, which was developed for endoscopy, so it's ideally suited to uh. <laughs> punching straight down a tiny 6mm gate. We have projected it 24 feet wide before, obviously, on our CinemaScope screen that we use, but we're going to be going, um, well, overall, it'd be about double the size, wouldn't it? Yes. So we're very fortunate with Film is Fabulous and we're being supported by a, a number of organizations. I should make mention of De Montfort University and their Cinema and Television History Institute, who have been uh, amazing in the support that they've given us. And they are the repository of quite a lot of paperwork, the Hammer uh, Film Archive. And of course, they have come across and handle a lot of celluloid. The celluloid is actually passed on by them to various archives. The one that I'm dealing with, because it's covering the centre of England, the Midlands where I'm based, is MACE. That's the Media Archive for Central England. People there are fantastic. Director Claire Watson should mention her name. And of course, the chairperson at MACE is the lovely Sue Malden. The actual event itself will take place at the end of October. It will be held in Leicester. I won't go into all the details now because they're just being finalised, but we will provide you, Tim, with the final details. So if you think that there is some uh, merit in sharing that amongst all the people that follow you, then please feel free to do that. And it will be a cracking event for people who are interested in film and film collecting. So I do need to ask, because this is called, firstly, Doctor Who, and secondly, a Missing Episodes podcast, and many people will be interested in missing TV in any way, shape, or form. Will there be announcements of missing TV? And dare I ask, will there be an announcement of a Doctor Who missing episode? Well, on your final point, I don't think there'll be an announcement of missing Doctor Who. Anyone that knows about, about me and Doctor Who, I always say that I only believe the evidence of my own eyes and uh, and I have not seen any missing Doctor Who that could potentially turn up at this event yet. But there's still time. But there is time between now, between now and the event. 
so yes, it would be lovely to to make an announcement of missing doctor. I don't think it's going to happen, but that doesn't mean to say that there might not be an announcement of other missing television. Uh, again, I can't say anything now about anything because I haven't seen anything new that might be coming. But we have had discussions with collectors who have suggested some titles that may be of interest to people that have an interest in, in lost television, yes. But again, I haven't seen anything. So if they were to come forward between now and the event, then we might have something to announce. But that's how but that's as that's, exciting. that's as much as I can say. I don't I don't think Doctor Who's gonna be in the mix, unfortunately. But um Okay. As I keep trying to say to people, it's not all about Doctor Who. There's much more interesting things out there. Uh, and we've got lots of Doctor Who's. I'm not saying we don't want to find more Doctor Who. I would love to find more Doctor Who, but equally I would like to find lots of other shows. And don't forget that in 1989, I visited a dusty basement which stank of vinegar and the sweat was pouring off me and I was absolutely drenched when I left there because it was in Cyprus in the middle of summer, July in Cyprus. In that basement room, I found 12 lost episodes of Z-Cars, including the first episode, along with a whole load of other missing shows. And I think there were two, over 200 missing programmes eventually came back. So those are the kind of things that I would love to find, you know, those 60s dramas that have been lost for 40 mm. or 50 years, nearly 60 years. And, um, you know, anything like that would be great for me. And if Doctor Who is in the mix, lovely, but, um, you know, don't hold your breath. Well, anything, I mean, personally speaking, I think as a Doctor Who fan, I'm so obsessed over the missing episodes, I feel I know them inside out. And I would love to see some more Zed cars or some Softly Softly or some Public Eye or some Callan or numerous other things. Yes. Well, what a brilliant and extraordinary discussion that was. Uh, I don't really know where to begin, but I do want to add about Film is Fabulous that it is an event for film collectors, it's an event to promote film, it's an event to promote an awareness within film collecting circles that collectors should consider how their films are going to be looked after in the future. And the venue has a capacity and it's really important for the event that as many film collectors can attend as possible. And as John said, any Doctor Who fans who have enjoyed the podcast and are interested in what may or may not be said or announced at the event will be able to follow via live streams and I for one will be absolutely certain to keep everybody posted with updates and any news that may occur. I also think I want to do a reaction video because I think that conversation has redrawn the map of what we understand as Doctor Who fans in general about film collectors. So keep an eye out for that. And so that concludes a special edition, a conversation with film collectors. Gosh. If you've enjoyed this, please do find the time to leave a review via Apple Podcasts. Five-star written reviews have more of an impact than listens in propelling us up the charts, which in turn spreads the word. Our executive producers are Rich Tipple, Bedria Gulledge, and Phil Mitchell. The piano on this episode was provided by a really talented musician and all-round nice guy, Harry Whitley. So do check out his YouTube channel, 
youtube.com slash C slash Harry Whitley. Andy can be found on the platform formerly known as Twitter at Harry Music Music. So say hello to Harry. Thanks to the brilliant artist and editor for hire, B. Garrido. Do check out her amazing Doctor Who artwork at bgaridoart.weebly.com. If you'd like to support us, help cover our costs, and keep me in milk chocolate digestives, head to www.patreon.com slash missingepisodes, where you get early access and a bunch of other treats and content. Speaking of which, thanks to all of our patrons, your support means so much, but especially Andy Kitching, Anthony Carroll, Anthony Weiner, Chris Phone, David Matthewman, Dean Poole, Dietz Easterwood, Gary Gillat, Harry Townsend, Jack Sharp, Jess Jerkovic, Jim Trenowden, Jonathan Molyneux, Matthew, Paul Cook, Ray Badrick, Sarah Irving, Simon Exton, Simon Whitehead, Sinead Morse, Stephen Moffat, and Tim Arding. If Patreon isn't for you, you can make a one-off tip at ko-fi.com slash missingeps. And you can check out our YouTube channel. Keep an eye on that for a discussion about this episode. We have a Facebook page, and I'm on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Doctor Who Podcasters, and that's with a DR. Come and say hello. Finally, John, John, and Paul. Thank you so much. That was amazing. And thanks to Paul for making this happen. All that is left is to say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, Bye. Bye Johns. Bye, Tim. And then there was James Mason moved into the Italian villa in Hollywood where Buster Keaton had moved out of years before. He went into the basement and there were all his negatives, minus the missing sequences from the cameraman. And that was how we still have all the Buster Keaton films today. Is there anything else that anyone wants to, to say? I want to say to John Clancy that I love Star Trek. <laughs> I love it as much as Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. But but there are John, there are no missing episodes of Star Trek. You see, there are ninety-seven. Because I've got them all. Yeah, exactly. So you know, they've even got Star the cage, Trek, haven't they? Goodness, the cage is brilliant. Yeah, I love all Star Trek. <laughs>